Hope y'all don't mind. I go ahead and go ahead and starting. Uh, golly, Moses, that preacher went on and on and on. <laughs> I know. Either. So, what we could do is just tell stories for uh, a half an hour, um, and uh, we may want to get into that a little bit. But um, for those of you who have come to St. Andrews in the last 22 years. My name is Ed Bacon and I was the Dean of the Cathedral here for six years from 89 until 95. And uh, it is a great, great honor for me to be back and to have done the Journey Series yesterday with a great group of people. And I realized that many, many of you were either out of town or had to work or do some other things and couldn't be here. So that's not a problem. Really glad you're here. Um, I do want to say just a couple of things and then let's just kind of have a free-for-all conversation. Um, I am quite conscious not of what has happened, but that you are now in an interim place and getting to a place where you can discern and call the next leader of St. Andrew's Cathedral. And I simply wanted to say a couple of things about my observations, both of St. Andrew's and of the country. Um, I retired from my position at All Saints Church in Pasadena on May 1, and Hope and I moved to Birmingham, Alabama because our daughter Alice and her husband Heath and their children live there. And we wanted to be close to them. And that, was, that overcame any other consideration. And so Hope said, when you're, I know you're not going to stop and I know you're going to travel. And when you're out of town, I want to be with Alice uh, and not be alone. And I said, that is absolutely the right thing. So we have happily moved there. Um, we received all of our junk on June 1 and have been settling in uh, 10 months now and really absolutely love it. Peter, our son, many of you will remember, lives in New Orleans and we get to be with him much, much more than we were able to when we lived in Pasadena. So we're really, really happy. Um, unlike y'all, who don't look a day older than when I left. <laughs> my body has aged a bit. And my internist, uh, in my last meeting in Pasadena with him, said, Ed, you have outlived your knees. So, one of the great stories about what happened here to us um, were all the families that we got invited to be in and one of them was uh, the Gil Detelm family. I don't know if you remember them, but I baptized him and the children. And Stephanie has really made a name for herself as a national leader of um, the Catechism of the Good Shepherd and goes all over the world. And Gil is a great uh, doctor in Birmingham. And so I called him and I said, I need doctors. I need an internist. I need a skin cancer man, a dermatologist. I need a knee man or woman, and, um, and Hope needs an allergist. And so um, I went to the knee man, and he said, my Lord, son, uh, 
you are bone on bone. And so I had this left knee replaced uh, nine weeks ago, and so that's why I'm doing the rude thing of sitting down instead of standing up uh, just to give it a little rest. Here's some observations that I want to make, um, and then we'll just open it up to have a little conversation. I've been, this is my fourth trip back to Jackson since we moved to Alabama. And every time I've been with um, St. Andrew's people. And I am thrilled to report uh, from my, I'm thrilled to report from my heart. Thank you. And continue to do that, David. I'm thrilled to report that from my heart, how much health I feel at St. Andrew's Cathedral. This is a healthy, healthy place at its core. And I just feel it when I'm here. And um, David Elliott, I hope it's okay if I went ahead and started. <laughs> I'm going to count on you to stop me when I'm supposed to stop, though, okay? You're the boss man. UK walk, I can't hear. Now, the reason I think that St. Andrew's Cathedral at its core is so healthy is twofold. What we just saw, this place loves to laugh together. Lord of mercy, y'all are easy laughers. And it is a wonderful thing. Now, I'm a shameless name dropper. And Hope and I had the great opportunity of going and having a 45-minute uh, private meeting with the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he calls himself a professional laugher. <laughs> and while we were there, I have never had a man be more physically affectionate with me. He just held my hand and he put his forehead to my forehead and he just laughed at himself and he laughed at me. Um, I weighed even more then when, uh, than I do now. And he looked at my waist and he said, um, I think you need to reduce. <laughs> That's what you told me one time. <laughs> and then he said, um, my doctor told me that I need to reduce. And uh, he said, how long, how long do you pray every day? I said, I pray, pray an hour every day. He said, oh, that's wonderful. He says, you know, I pray five, four hours a day, but I knew you were coming today and I prayed an extra hour. <laughs> <laughs> so laughing, oh my God in heaven, it is so important to our health, okay? To be able to laugh, particularly at ourselves. That's the most cathartic um, brand of, of laughter. The other is um, the love that's here. Um, I talked a lot about, when I was here, force fields and energy fields, uh, because many of you will remember that I was a big student of Rabbi Edwin Friedman, who taught me systems thinking. I was, so, I was so happy to see in the message translation of this morning's gospel, John 9, where Jesus says, 
according to the message translation. Now, uh, people are coming and saying, you know, this kid, this man is born blind. Whose fault is that? Uh, his mom and daddy or his? And uh, it's a, just a bunch of blaming going on. And Jesus says, you know, cause and effect thinking never works. That's according to the message. And Rabbi Friedman said, you always look at the system. Look at all the different factors that contribute to our being in whatever state of being we're in. Um, and you have to look at the entire force field, energetic force field, like, you know, if you had a, a sheet of paper here with iron filings on the top of it and a magnet underneath it and you move the magnet around, the iron filings would go around because there's a force field set up between the magnet and the iron filings, even though if you're not looking beneath the paper, you wouldn't know what's going on. Well, it's always important to look systemically at whatever's going on and look at the energy field. And if the energy field is about fear, then there's gonna be destruction, fear upon fear and hate upon hate and blame upon blame will spiral us down, as Dr. King said, into an abyss. But if we have this force field of love, which I spend some time preaching about um, at uh, the next service, then you've got uh, a chance to solve any problem. So I think that that's really going on here. Now, I, I have done more travel uh, since, I guess, September, a little bit in August and September up until now, um, than I have uh, maybe five years before and have gotten to go to places like Palm Beach, Florida last week and preach in a church that was a mild from Mar-a-Lago to, 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 to. Um, Seattle's coming up, Vancouver, Hope and I are going to be in Vancouver for Holy Week, been to Fayetteville, Arkansas, um, Beverly Hills, and some other places, and interestingly enough, everybody is wanting the same thing from me. Wanting to talk about how can you become peaceful and, or creative, they just, you fill in the blanks, in a tumultuous world. And all of us know that we live in a very polarized country, and we've heard stories about how Congress people, uh, U.S. representatives and senators, 40 years ago would really duke it out verbally on the floor of the Senate or the House and then go and have drinks with one another and play golf with one another and invite one another to be godparents of their children. No more is that happening. It is not only polarized, it is tribalistically polarized. And everybody I'm seeing around the country is so hungry for a solution to that because everybody in their true self, in their heart of hearts, know that we can't survive. That's not sustainable as people. Um, so I'm discovering, Kathy Woodluff asked me the other night, am I seeing hope? I'm seeing a lot of hope all over the world because there's so many people, I'm speaking mostly to Episcopalian crowds, are really wanting to be equipped to deal with ways to have a reconciled world uh, or a peaceful world or a love-based world or whatever you 
say in a tribalistically uh, polarized world. The next thing I want to say is, and I won't read it, but I want to, to hold it up for you. Uh, pardon my moving slow. You know I've been in the hospital. I had my knee replaced. Um, <laughs> but I um, wanted you to see a book that's really uh, caught a lot of our attention, and the name of it is The End of White Christian America. And it begins with an obituary for white Christianity in America, and it ends with a eulogy. And then in between the obituary and the eulogy are the reasons that white Christian America as we have known it for more than 200 years, and they go back to George Washington and the founders, is because we did so many things right in terms of um, services like hospitals and schools, etc. But we got wrong race, inclusion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people, and politics. And we got those three things wrong. Not us in this room, but as a phenomenon. And all the demographics show that white Christian America just doesn't have the strength that it had, say, 50 years ago. And it's got some really instructive things to say about race, inclusion, and politics. And the reason I raise that is because as you, as a very important faith community in the Episcopal Church, St. Andrew's Cathedral is a significant motor in the National Episcopal Church. That it's important for you in leadership here to go to school about the fact that attendance and giving are on either a plateau and decline or a rapid dip decline throughout the Episcopal Church. And that is going to call for some great creativity and innovation about determining what the new form of Christian worship is going to be. Now, that's one of the reasons that I preach all the time about brain science connected to living in an energy field of love versus an energy field of fear. Because, and I taught this when I was dean because I was learning it from Rabbi Friedman when I would go up to Bethesda twice a year or three times a year and come back here and just spill out everything I'd learned from Rabbi Friedman and he, until he died my first year in Pasadena. And he came and spoke here at the cathedral twice. And he was really taken with brain science and said that we have three brains and the oldest brain we have is our brain stem, and it is our reptilian brain, which doesn't have the capacity to think. It just has the capacity to react. And when we're scared, all of the blood flows down to our reptilian brain so that we can simply determine 
whether we're going to fight or flee or freeze um, in the face of some kind of real fear. What we have to watch out for is making sure that our fears are real as opposed to imagined. And it is possible for a system, a human being, a family, uh, a business, a school, whatever, to live in imagined fear or chronic fear so that everything is seen as fear-based, as something that is, is a threat. And that's not the case. And then there are two other brains on top, the younger brain on top of the uh, reptilian brain is what uh, Rabbi Friedman called our mammalian brain. And that's where we can be compassionate and playful and care for our young, forgive, those kinds of things. And then uh, this is kind of like a, a brain. And then where my knuckles are is the prefrontal cortex. And that is where we create and innovate. And uh, Albert Einstein said that you cannot solve a problem with the same level of consciousness that created it. So if you created a a problem because you were living in the house of fear down here, you can't solve the problem with a fear-based solution. Actually, fear can't come up with solutions. And you have to learn how to get up here and in your mammalian brain, or what I call our Mother Teresa brain, so that we can be compassionate and in community and forgiving and be playful and care for our young. And then if we can get our, our blood on flowing you know, even up here, what I call our Albert Einstein brain, that's where we have the ability to create and innovate. So the, the church has got to get up here. We've got to continue to be compassionate with one another, forgive one another, and all that kind of stuff. Hold ourselves to account, being able to have our, take our own inventory, not somebody else's. But we've got to get on up here to have some creativity and some innovation about our problems. And so that's why it's so important to live in a community that's based in love, like I detect is going on at St. Andrew's Cathedral. Well, I've spoken enough, and my hunch is that I will probably turn into a pumpkin in 20 minutes and uh, so they can go and get vested for um, the 11 o'clock service. It's 11, right? Not 11.15. So... Um, what I would love is, because this is the most important, now what's about to happen is the most important thing that ever happens when a speaker comes, are the questions. So um, Richard Rohr likes not to call it question and answer, but question and response, which I really love that notion. And um, so what you'll do is just um, uh, raise your hand and let me recognize you and you uh, ask your question if, if people can't hear it. Um, then I'll repeat it and we'll have a little conversation. Is that okay? Are you here? Are you, you able to hear me? Is this working? Woo. I'll ask them to stay and I sure will. So, please. Yes, sir. Right. So once now that we've gotten over the gay marriage debate in the church, what's next? Well, I think the, the two things rush to my mind. We sure have got to get right about transgender stuff. We've got to stop thinking about male and female being binary. You know, either you're male or you're female. And we've got people who are sincere, who are saying, I am, I, I can't declare. Now, some people, transgender people, are saying, I was born with uh, a male body and what my soul and heart are 
is a, a woman and I'm gonna be transgender woman. That's, uh, that's pretty easy for me to get my head around because when I was a kid, I knew people in uh, the church areas where my daddy was a pastor and uh, those folks, it was just real clear to me that I have in mind a, a, a person who, uh, when she came out, they said, it's a girl. And it was really, and, and she always dressed as a woman because in South Georgia we didn't do this transgender thing. But it was really, really clear to me that her chemical makeup was that of a man. Um, so I, I get my hand and head around that. I have had the benefit of being with people who are saying this, this stuff is fluid and they even want their pronouns not to be him or her, but they and them. And so that takes some getting used to. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is we really haven't, the other, the other challenge I think has to do with America's ugly secret and that is class. You know, we've got to get to a place where we, uh, wealthy people, everybody in this room is pretty doggone wealthy when you look at global standards. And think of poverty in the world and poverty in our country and what has contributed to that and really understand it and not look at it in a cause and effect one-to-one -one thing, but look at it from a systemic basis and look at the multifaceted thing. So clearly, Jackson and the state of Mississippi, right, has some work to do about that. And cathedrals have had, and, and, and Jackson and Mississippi are not the only ones, but cathedrals over the history of cathedrals have played a huge part in getting involved in the economic health of the city. And uh, there's a great um, psalm that talks about that we are called to make glad the city. And so for, um, we call ourselves here the cathedral in the city, right? And we have a responsibility to the city as an organism. The Bible is not just interested in individuals. The Bible's interested in individuals. But the Bible's interested also in, in systems. And it's very interesting to look at the Greek, Matthew 25, which we quote all the time, you know, I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came and you come for me when I was sick and came and visited me in prison, on and on and on. That is said to the nations of the world. And so Jesus says that in the end time, the, the Lord gathered all the nations of the world and divided the nations into sheep and goats based on whether or not the nations, the political systems, were doing some healthy intervention in the face of sick people, poor people, immigrants, strangers, refugees, on and on and on and on. So I think that's a big agenda. Please. How do you, how do we yes. separate, and maybe we should not. Right. I would like to separate. Right. And depend upon the church. Right. Rather than the government. Right. Rather than the government. I understand. Yes. Right. I think that's dangerous. I think that's our main enemy is, is religious government. Right. So how do we, as, as Canadians, address, how should we even address that? 
Sure. I think, the, yeah, I'm so sorry. How do we address the issues? Um, and should we be thinking about religious uh, solutions versus governmental solutions? And Richard Rohr has taught us that, and so many other wise people have taught us, that to the degree that we try to go at any kind of problem with an either or solution, that's not going to work. It's got to be both and. So religions have got to do their work, but all the religions of the world cannot solve the issue of poverty. That has got to be a governmental solution with the values of religion without the religions. And I really hear and feel your, this is a real fear, not an imagined fear, that there might be set up some kind of theocracy. I got it, I got it. But obviously we don't want a theocracy. And thank God for the First Amendment that keeps us from establishing a religion. So, but we, I think it's naive to think that all, even, all the, even if there were a bunch of healthy religions in the U.S. that we could solve this. Because we've got to respect the atheistic position. I'm an atheist when it comes to that God that I'm preaching about in the sermon this morning in the um, but I'm a I'm a Christian Episcopalian a Bapto Episcopalian <laughs> atheist Buddhist Jesuit Methodist <laughs> I'm all that stuff and I believe in hyphens so um, we've got to we've got to call uh, and I think we can do it um, and we could get into a long political discussion, which I'm not going to enter into today, uh, but it would have to do with budgets as moral documents, and it would have to do with uh, values and where war appropriately fits in uh, a humanistic culture as well. Okay, next question. Please. Thank you. I, I, I think it's, uh, Charles is raising the opportunities, and this is really lively, uh, he says, in, in Mississippi, and it certainly is lively right now in the Episcopal Church with our having an African-American presiding bishop. And uh, the, the House of Bishops focused on multiculturalism, um, and they're meeting at Canuga three weeks ago, I guess it was. It certainly never helps to call somebody a racist, does it? Nobody wants to be called a racist, and I don't believe that there are racists. I believe there's racist thinking. I think there, there's institutional racism, and it's really important for us to come to terms and not be in denial, as Charles said, about the institutional level functioning, which keeps people of color in a lower um, social spot of advantages than white p 
people. And I mentioned a little bit of this in my sermon in a few minutes. Um, but it behooves us all to get some training in all of this, I think, and particularly white folks. Uh, we do ourselves a disadvantage if we think that it's the job of black people, Latinos, Asian Americans, on and on, people of color, to help us with our racism. We've got to help ourselves. We've got to go to school on our own racism. And we've got to come to terms with our white supremacy and that we live. Now, if you haven't read, Go Set a Watchman by Harper Lee. I love it as much as I love Atticus Finch's story in To Kill a Mockingbird. This continues the story. And it shows and illustrates in great fiction form, as only Harper Lee can do, how a really great person, Atticus Finch, was the president of the White Citizens Council in that town in Alabama, and in fact was the president and had White Citizens Council meetings that he presided over in the same courtroom where he was such a, a humanistic a hero. And how she has to come to terms with how really good people, like everybody in this room, can be a part of institutional racism. And um, I would commend that to you. So let's go on. There's a, another question back here. Please. Yes. how we, concrete steps that we as individuals and as a community can take to foster respect across these polarizing lines. Yes, yes, I do. So the question is how do we foster respect to cross this polarization, uh, the tribalistic lines, um, respect our differences, but find really civil ways not only to talk with one another, but to come together for solutions. Well, the most important thing, I've been already hinted at it by saying I don't believe they're racists. The most important thing you can do is to understand that in every human being, there is the being part and the doing part. And we need to distinguish between the doing and the being. You remember St. Frank Sinatra, who's saying doobie doobie doo. <laughs> Everybody is good. Nobody is represented by the worst thing they've ever done. Not in God's eyes, not according to Jesus. We are better than the worst thing we've ever done. And we have to, as a commitment, to look at every human being as an image of God and as the Christ. My, one of my favorite passages of scripture is John 1, the pro, called the prologue to John, the, the first chapter of John, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and everything that ever was made, and everybody that ever was made, was made through the Word, and everybody has the Word in them. Nothing that was ever made 
doesn't have the word in them. Richard Rohr calls that the Christ. I call that love. Love is God and was with God from the very, very beginning. And everybody was created through the power of love. And there is nobody who doesn't have love in them. And in every human being, there is a place inside the center of their souls that has never, ever been touched by sin, corruption, abuse, trauma. And my job, as somebody who believes that with all my heart, is to approach absolutely everybody, particularly those people with whom I disagree, and seek that part of them and have such a relationship with them that they trust me and our relationship to let that out. It's called compassion. Thomas Burton said it was, it's the virgin part in everybody. Uh, Meister Eckhart says uh, that it is this place where n nobody has ever touched. John O'Donohue talks about that as well. And um, I think that uh, in the baptismal covenant where we promise every time somebody's baptized to seek and serve Christ in every human being. We believe that the Christ is in absolutely every human being, not just Christians, not just people we like, but particularly people in whom Christ is very heavily disguised. <laughs> we have a responsibility to seek and serve that. So the first, and so I, I am going to have to close, but I love this story. It's, it's just kind of one of my new stories. And those of you who heard it yesterday, please forgive me. And my wonderful wife, Hope, will you please stand and let us thank you for being here with me. Hope. <laughs> Woo, isn't she pretty? So Hope and I uh, were invited to, to uh, go up to Trinity, to go down to Trinity Church, New Orleans, and speak in October for stewardship. Okay, okay. I'm going to tell the story and then I'm going. And I can get dressed real fast. So uh, we spoke, and uh, Corky and, and Doris had us for supper and um, had the Thompsons. You all remember Bubba Thompson, who was at St. James, and he's the, uh, the, the bishop of Louisiana. And so the six of us were having supper. And uh, Trinity Church um, in New Orleans has rented a condominium for Corky and Doris to live in while he's serving as their interim. And... Uh, so we were talking about that, and I was admiring this particular painting on the wall, and that brought to mind the fact that they said that they had had a really bad mold problem in their house, which is the case with a lot of houses in New Orleans because, you know, how tropical it is down there. In fact, that particular painting, they had discovered mold growing on the back of the, of the painting. And uh, they said it just took us so long to get, get the mold under control. And I had this fantasy of this very slick salesman coming to the house and knocking on the door and saying, I am a mold salesman, and I've got a high grade of mold I want to sell y'all. 
Uh, we're not, no, thank you. We're not, no, 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 no. This is really great mold. This is fine quality mold. No, no, no. no this is money back guarantee mold that I'm going to sell you. And finally, they have to say, I am not in the market for mold. I have got all the mold I can stand. I'm trying to get rid of the mold I've already got. I think that everybody in this room, every Christian and everybody I speak to, has a responsibility to say, I am not in the market for hate. I am not in the market for tribalistic polarization and difference. I am not in the market for violence. I have got all I can handle, and I'm trying to get rid of what I got. Thank you very much. Go somewhere else. Thank you. Thank you very much. When are you going to I've already been. Oh, yes, you need this back. You're so welcome.